We're turning again this morning to Jeremiah. We're in the middle of the book, chapters 30 to 33, the songs of consolation in a very dark time in the history of God's people. The Babylonians have taken many of the children of Israel captive. The Babylonian army is now besieging the city of Jerusalem, the temple is about to be destroyed. Jeremiah himself is in prison. This is the darkest time of the night that has come upon them. And in this, the bleakest of hours, God makes these wonderful promises which we've been looking at these last few weeks. And this morning, we're in chapter 32, which is the second movement if you like music, the second movement of the Song of Comfort. And God commands the prophets to do the most absurd of things. Now, I know some of you have been in the process of buying houses in these last few months, and it is very stressful. But Jeremiah is told to buy a plot of land a few miles away from the city, from the son of his uncle. And God says to him, that plot of land is one day going to be possessed by you. Jeremiah was in prison. How will he ever get to enjoy that plot of land? That plot of land is worth nothing because the city is besieged. Think of buying a plot of land in the Ukraine. You, you wouldn't want to do that at this time. And even if it gains in value, it's going to be the property of the enemy. And yet God says to him, buy this plot of land. And Jeremiah does what God says to him. He acts in faith. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. When we become Christians, we act in faith. And as we continue as believers, we walk by faith. Now, that doesn't mean that it's all hunky-dory. When Jeremiah has this challenge from God, what does he do? He does what God tells him, but he's still perplexed. I try to bring that out in his prayer to God. How did his prayer start? In verse 17, if you've got a Bible, Ah, ah, I don't understand what you're doing, O God. I'm in great distress. But the thing I want to look at this morning is this. Jeremiah puts it in his prayer. There is nothing too hard for you, O God. Verse 17. And then after pouring his heart to God, God says to Jeremiah then, in verse 27, it's a rhetorical question, is anything too hard for me? That's what I want to bring to us this morning. This challenge from God is anything too hard for the Lord. Jeremiah, what is this little plot of land to me? For you, it is impossible. You're in prison. In one sense, you're never going to enjoy it if it's up to you. But it's up to me, Jeremiah. And I'm the God of the impossible. When you come to the New Testament, 
That's how Jesus Christ describes God. With God, nothing shall be impossible. And I don't know what kind of situation is facing you this morning. You may have things that are just causing you great distress. And we're going to look at the most important thing in a moment. But I want to bring this challenge before every one of us. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Whatever your problem may be, are you saying in your heart of hearts, God can't deal with that. This is God's challenge. I can. Bring it to me. I'm the God of the impossible. Now then, let's look at how God gives this challenge to us through Jeremiah this morning. God uses an interesting way of reasoning. He argues from the greater to the lesser. So think of the plot of land. Whatever is your issue this morning, it's the size of that field, right? God says that field is the small thing. If I can do the big, the greater things, then I can sort out your little problem. Now, what are the greater things that God mentions here? If you look at verse 17, he mentions the first. What have we got in verse 17? Ah, Lord God. Well, it's Jeremiah who mentions it, but this is the greater activity of God. Behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Therefore, there is nothing too hard for you. What's the first challenge here from the greater to the lesser? It's this, God's work of creation. God's work of creation. That was made the heavens and the earth. That's the whole universe. What's a little field in comparison to the whole universe? What did, ha- what did God have when he created the world? What, what raw materials did he have? What help did he have? What tools did he have? Zilch. God created the universe ex nihilo, out of nothing. God spoke, and it came to pass. You're here this morning because God created you. There was a time when you and I didn't exist. And now we're here. Now, I know you will say to me, but pastor, uh, I'm in this world because my mother gave birth to me. There were natural processes involved. So God did use something there. All right. But when you go back to the book of Genesis, to the very beginning, God created our first parents, Adam and Eve. It doesn't say out of nothing, does it? It says something even more significant, I think. Out of dust, out of dust. Now, I think that that goes even beyond nothing. Dust just shows how small we are 
what God said to our first parents after they disobeyed him. And that's why this world's in the mess that it's in. God didn't create it like this. God created this world a paradise. Our first parents were put in the Garden of Eden, and it was all very good. And yet, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God. They rebelled against him. And as a result of that, you had death coming into the world. And not just death, but sin and disasters. And this is what God said to Adam. From dust thou art. From dust you've been made. And to dust you will one day return. That's what all of us are. We're just going to the dust. One day our bodies are going to be food for worms. It doesn't matter how important you think you may be. You are made from the dust and you're going back to the dust. This is what Paul says uh, when a person in the letter to the Romans was trying to say, God, why are you doing this? You're dust. Oh, man, oh, woman, who are you to reply against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me like this? Out of nothing, God, by his strong hand, by his outstretched arm, brought all of us into being. Can you see the challenge here this morning? What a little field. What's your little problem to such a God? I haven't got a strong arm. My arm aches if I hold it up for too long. We can't lean, as the Bible says, on arms of flesh. We can't depend on ourselves. But God's arm is omnipotent. It's almighty. So that, there's one thing, the work of creation. But there is another work of God that is mentioned here as well. Uh, a little later on in verse 27, God says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, the God of all mankind. Verses 18 and 19, we're told that God is the great and the mighty one, the Lord of hosts. That speaks of the heavenly hosts. The angels is his name, great in counsel and mighty in work. For thine eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men. What is this? This is the work of God in providence. God didn't just create this world like the blind watchmaker and leave it to itself. God is in charge of this world. God is in complete control of what is happening. It's that song, isn't it? He holds the whole world in his hands. He hasn't, as it were, stood back. He holds you and me and our little church in his hands. He holds the field that is about to be possessed by Jeremiah in his hands. He holds your problems in his hands. Why are we breathing this morning? The Bible says it's because God is giving us each breath that we are taking. What a little field to the God who holds the whole universe in his arms. The God who by the word of his power upholds everything. Do we really believe in God being in complete control of everything? 
But those two things are not what I'm interested in this morning when it comes to this challenge of God. Is there anything too hard for me? Yes, he's the God of creation. What's a field to him? Small fry. Yes, he's the God of providence. He can look after my field. But there's one work of God here which we really want to concentrate on. This is what the gospel, the good news, is all about. Do you know what this work is? I'm calling it the work of salvation. What salvation? Salvation is being saved from something. So God, even in this chapter, says to Jeremiah, verse 15, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields, including the field I'm telling you to buy, and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Even though Jeremiah is in prison, even though the Chaldean, the Babylonian army are besieging the city, one day God will save his people from the Babylonians. The people will come back from captivity and they will dwell again in Jerusalem. The God who saves that's just a dress rehearsal in terms of one work of salvation. If you're familiar with the Old Testament and even much of Jeremiah, there's a theme, there's a motif that comes across several times. And that is not just God saving from the Babylonians, but God saving his people from the Egyptians. Did you get that in the reading? In verse 20, we're told, God who has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day, and then a little later, has brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders. And here it is again, with a strong hand and with a stretched out arm and with great terror. And has given them this land, even though now this land is occupied by the enemy. God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. So there's God saving his people from Babylon. That's going to come. But a bigger sign is God saving his people from Egypt. The bondage of Egypt. God miraculously delivering his people across the Red Sea, leading them through the desert and bringing them to the land flowing with milk and honey. But even that's a dress rehearsal for something else. The signs are pointing to a substance. What is it? What is it? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Somebody else heard that. A few centuries after this, a young mother who was expecting had an angel visitor, and this woman was astounded by what the angel said to her, and she said, how can this be? And the angel, whose name was Gabriel, said, with the Lord nothing shall be impossible. You know what I'm referring to. The woman was Mary, 
the angel Gabriel was telling Mary that she was pregnant, not with an ordinary baby. Yes, the baby was going to be a real human being, but it was the Holy Spirit, not Joseph, her betrothed husband, who had put the seed in her womb. And that baby was none other than the promised Messiah throughout the Old Testament, even in these songs of consolation. God is promising deliverance through a person, a Messiah. The children of Israel had been waiting centuries for this person to be sent. And this is what we have the amazing privilege to look back at. Jeremiah was looking forward to it. He saw dimly, we are looking back and we are looking at it with clarity. With God, nothing shall be impossible. My friends, it's the work of salvation in Jesus Christ that ultimately Jeremiah is talking about in these verses. And this is the greatest work of God. Great God of wonders, we sang. All thy ways are matchless, God-like and divine. When we consider the universe, that's amazing. That leaves us gobsmacked, but it's not as amazing as what God has done in Jesus Christ. Think of the storm that we've endured these last few days. We're told in the book of Psalms that God rides his chariot upon the storm clouds. It was nothing, a storm in a teacup for God. And yet there is something even more powerful than that storm. There is the power of salvation in Jesus Christ. Let me just tell you about that this morning and then we'll go to communion which will remind us further of this wonderful work, this impossible thing that God has done. Now why is it more amazing than everything that's gone before? You know, in creation God created us out of nothing. Creatures were made by their creator. In the new creation, in the sending of Jesus Christ, this is what is most amazing. It was the creator that became a creature. C.S. Lewis described it. The humiliation for the maker of the universe to become one of us. It's like one of us becoming a slug. Have you? Well, you all have seen slugs, haven't you? Are we still allowed to put salt out uh, in our back gardens upon the slugs in order to kill them? Maybe we're not allowed to do that anymore. But slugs, they're, they're horrible things. For God to become a man, to be born of a virgin, to have to live in this world to grow up in some backwater place. Behold, great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. I think that's the greatest miracle that God has done. When I was living in Llandidno, I was brought up in North Wales, Llandidno, the queen of Welsh resorts, and on the high street of Llandidno, there was a church at the time, I don't know if it's still there, and they always advertised miracles on a certain day. I don't know how they knew miracles were going to happen on that day, but that's what they did. And by that, they meant physical healings. I believe God can do that. 
But it misses the point, doesn't it? This is the miracle of miracles that causes every other miracle of God to fade away. I believe that if you are sick, you can be healed. I believe that with all my heart. But I believe it's with even more faith that if you, as a sin-sick soul, come to Jesus Christ, you can be healed of your spiritual disease. Indeed, God often does not heal us physically. There, there are cases even in the New Testament when Jesus was here on earth and people would come to him wanting him to do something for them in the physical realm. And sometimes he refused to do that. But I've known of no one that came to Jesus Christ with their spiritual disease and asked, them, asked him from the bottom of their hearts to heal them. I know of no one that hasn't been spiritually delivered. And it's not being rescued from an enemy like the Babylonians or from the bondage of Egypt. This is about God delivering us from something far worse. We know what it is, don't we? We still have it inside of us. This horrible disease of sin. Uh, this uh, power that seems to overcome us even as Christians. And God sent his only begotten son into the world, not just to live. He did live. He lived the perfect life. He was tempted in all points, as we are, yet without sin. He was our substitute doing that. But the, the work that Jesus came to do, he set his face as a flint to accomplish that work in his ministry, was to die in our place. That's the greatest work of God. Can I say with reverence, this is the hardest thing for God to do. God is holy. God is righteous. God must punish sin. There is the law of God which must be honored. And yet God's heart delights to forgive people like you and me. And so there's a dilemma here, isn't there, in the Godhead? How can God be just and still justify those who are sinners? And God has found a way. He's found a way. Because on the cross, God punished your sin and mine. There is a hell. How do I know that there is a hell? I know that there is a hell because Jesus Christ suffered hell for three hours 2,000 years ago on Calvary. All our sins on him were laid. The innocent dying for the guilty. The law of God being honored. Justice divine is satisfied. So God can now forgive whoever believes in Jesus Christ. Because the punishment has been meted out already. Uh, there's a word that is used in verse 18. Loving kindness. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands that's a metaphor what God is saying is yes I am a God of judgments man and women are appointed once to die and after that the judgment God must punish sin that's why there is a hell that's why we must be saved from that God is a God of judgment but even in Jeremiah God says judgment is my strange work and God says here yes I judge but there is something else that I show to thousands. Judgment is upon the one. Loving kindness, grace, undeserving favor is to thousands. 
what was it Amy Carmichael who said, God doesn't give out his grace in teaspoons. Is, is there a quote like that by Amy Carmichael? God doesn't give out his grace in teaspoons, but in buckets. Buckets. Buckets of grace. This is how Spurgeon put it. This is the hardest thing, the most wonderful thing God has ever done. His son came down to live among men. He took on him human form, was born of a virgin. This is such a miracle that all other miracles I've ever heard of seem commonplace in comparison. Compared to the wonder of wonders, the Lord showed taking upon himself the nature of man and then more marvellous still, taking upon himself the sin of the people and bearing the awful load of their transgression and all the burden of their punishment and endured it even to the last pang, drinking up the cup of infinite justice to its dregs. Never was God so godlike as when Jesus died upon the cross. No wonder Samuel Davis could say, Great God of wonders, all thy ways, creation, providence, a matchless, godlike, and divine. But salvation, the fair glories of thy grace, more godlike and unrivaled shine. And here's the conclusion Who is a pardoning God like thee? Who has grace? So large and free. Lord, it's not just that you've got bucket loads of grace, but those buckets are taken from a reservoir of grace, and that reservoir will never run out. And it's not just that. We don't have to pay for it. It comes to us for free, for free. Simon Peter, in his letter, said, even the angels and the prophets desired to look more into this work of salvation, and they just couldn't see it, could they? They could only see it dimly like in a fog. The angels, they, I think, were envious that God was planning something that wasn't for them, but for sinful mankind. I like the way that Wesley puts it, tis mystery all. <laughs> Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, not even the greatest riddle possible. How can God be just and forgive a sinner? Tis mystery all. The immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain, the firstborn seraph, the firstborn angel, tries to sound the depths of love. I'm trying to sound the depths of something infinite. Infinite love, infinite forgiveness, infinite grace. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I've got to come to a conclusion we're going to be reminded in the communion of what Jesus did on that cross. But I've just got two questions, a challenge for all of us in two questions. If nothing is too hard for God, why aren't you saved yet if you're not a Christian? Can you honestly say that you're too bad for Jesus Christ? Can you? Jesus Christ said, All manner of sin and blasphemies shall be forgiven men. John says, The blood of Jesus Christ, the blood denotes his sacrificial death in our place. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Are you trying to tell me 
or trying to tell God that there's some sin in your life which is too great for Jesus Christ to forgive? Come on, God is saying. There is no limit to my grace. You're trying to reason about it. You can't do that. Grace is not unreasonable. It's beyond reason. Grace can't be reasoned about. What you've got to do is believe and adore. Did you know what Jeremiah did? He stepped out in faith. When God told him to buy this land, it seemed absolutely crazy, didn't it? So Jeremiah stepped out in faith. When I'm saying, through the word of God, that Jesus Christ came into this world from sheer love to you and to me, and he was our substitute so that we could be saved that he's done absolutely everything. He's lived the perfect life in your place. He's taken the punishment down to the last uh, stripe. If you cast yourself on him, you will be saved. Now, that sounds too good to be true, but it's not too hard for the Lord. It's not. Some of you will know the story of the tightrope walker Blondin. His most famous feat was walking on a tightrope over the Niagara Falls. And I don't think they had safety nets. And somebody went up to him afterwards and said, that was amazing, Blondin. How did you do it? And then Blondin turns to this person and says, do you believe I could carry somebody over in a wheelbarrow? And this person nodded his head and said, yes, of course you can. You're the great Blondin. Nothing is too hard for you. And you know what Blondin asked him next? Okay, then. Get in the wheelbarrow. And this person said, oh, I don't think so. I don't think so. You see, that person believed in their heads that Blondin was able to carry a person over in the wheelbarrow. But that person, in his heart couldn't trust his salvation, as it were, to Blondin. I wonder, is there anybody here this morning who knows in their head everything I've said, and you agree with me? Praise God. That's good. It's good that you hear this and that you assent to it. But maybe there's another step you need to take, and that step is the step of faith where you cast yourself completely on Jesus Christ. Even if you say to him, Lord, I do want to believe in you. I do want to put my complete trust in you. Not easy believism, not just head knowledge. I want to take you as my Lord as well as my Savior. I want to be in you, in your wheelbarrow, as it were, if you pardon the analogy. I want you to carry me, carry me on this tightrope of a world. Isn't it a tightrope sometimes? Navigating all the uh, difficulties. I want you to carry me through. And I want you to carry me to the other end. Not so much a physical land of Canaan, but a heavenly Canaan. I want you, O Lord, because I can't do it. My hand isn't strong. My arm is flabby. I'm going to fail. But you have not just the power, but you have the willingness to do it. 
Can you do that? There, there is one thing I still can't do. There's one thing I still can't do. Do you know what that is? I can't swim. I can't. I've been told you just you just have to you just have to kind of let the water do do it for you. But I just can't. I can't. But I know how to believe. And there are many things you may not be able to do. But I want you to join me in believing in Jesus. And then my second challenge is to those, those of us who are believers. You can see where I'm going, the reasoning here, from the greater to the lesser. I think Paul uses it in Romans 8. What did Paul say in Romans 8? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? My friend, God has done the greatest thing in the universe. He's provided your salvation. He's saved you for eternity. I'm sure you can trust God for your little field. Whatever your problem may be, I'm sure God is more than capable to look after that. I just want to finish with a quote from Spurgeon again. I would to God we had in the religion of these modern times, he was speaking at the 19th century, the second half, it's just as true at the beginning of the 21st century. I wish we had a more potent infusion of this heroic faith in God. I see the Christian church degenerating more and more into a society acting upon business principles. If the power of God were once more to baptize the church, we should have men and women who would dare to trust in God instead of putting confidence in men. If we've trusted God for the greatest thing, our salvation, oh, may we trust God for other miracles. May we see, I'm so glad Andy you're with us this morning. I see that as God intervening. And may we begin a new chapter in the history of our little church. And may we see miracles of grace. May, may we see God's intervention in all sorts of ways. And may we stand still and see the salvation of God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. Only you can answer that question in your hearts for his name's sake. Let's sing now before we come to communion. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, for me, who caused his pain? For me, him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let's praise him for dying in our place. If you're at home, it's 524. Thank mm -hmm. you.